The first case is Nasa Construction Corporation v. Secretary of the Army, 21-2305. Mr. McNamara, I see that you have not reserved any time for rebuttal, correct? That is correct. Okay. We're ready when you are, sir. May it please the Court. My name is John McNamara. I am counsel at Lane McNamara LLP in South Borough, Massachusetts, which, for your Honor's reference, is about 25 miles due west of Boston. I am counsel for the appellant, Nasa Construction Corporation, also of Massachusetts. Your Honors, this appeal involves a project known as the Unit Training Equipment Site, or what we have called the UTES Project in Bourne, Massachusetts, which is right at the doorway to Cape Cod. The UTES Project was owned by the Army National Guard, and Nasa was the general contractor pursuant to a solicitation in 2012. On appeal, your Honors, is whether the termination of Nasa was defective and or deficient because the government did not properly advise Nasa of its appellate rights as required by the FAR, and in light of the defective termination, whether Nasa's appeal of that termination to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals was timely. Before we get to an argument concerning the adequacy of a termination notice, and that's where you're headed, correct? Yes. All right. Is it necessary that we first consider whether the contractor was prejudiced? Your Honor, that is part of the calculus. Absolutely. It's a separate, distinct calculus, isn't it? I believe it's part of the Decker analysis of whether the termination was facially defective and whether the contractor was prejudiced as a result of those defects. And for reasons that we have set forth in our papers, we argue that Nasa was in fact prejudiced by the defective termination notice in light of prior facts before the termination in the government's counsel post-termination. Can I just ask, I guess sort of as a threshold matter, here the only defect identified is a regulatory one. The cases like Decker, I think, were all statutory defects. Does that distinction matter at all? I believe Decker and Pathman, Your Honor, were under 33211 of the FAR in Section 605 of the CDA regarding what rights must be provided to the contractor in cases of a final contract decision, final contractor's decision. So I believe Decker and Pathman both arose under the FAR Section 33211. Thank you, Your Honor. And on the question of, I guess, Decker talks about detrimental reliance. Isn't it something like normal for a concept of reasonableness to be built into a detrimental reliance standard so that it wouldn't be enough to say, I relied on this, I would have filed earlier had I known, if that wouldn't be enough, if that reliance was unreasonable? Yes, the reliance would have to be reasonable, Your Honor. Absolutely. So why shouldn't we understand the board decision in substance to say, with a lawyer on hand and, in fact, doing research as indicated, I assume, by billing records or something, 
Yes, Your Honor. Any confusion just was not reasonable. Well, Your Honor, the board found that Nossett was confused regarding its appellate rights, although it says it doesn't understand the genesis of that confusion. So I think there's been a finding by the board that there was confusion as to Nossett as to what it could and could not do in light of this termination. And yes, I was involved. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Even with that, even with a finding of confusion, going back to the question just asked by Judge Toronto, isn't there have to be a determination of whether it was reasonable to be confused? Yes, of course, Your Honor. And the facts of the case establish, and I believe the board below established that there was an element of reasonableness related to Nossett's confusion in light of what had transpired immediately before and immediately after the termination. But you're not contending that the board found that the confusion was reasonable, right? No, the board did not go that far, Your Honor, absolutely. But the facts of the termination, immediately prior to the termination, and actually for months prior to the termination, I was in communication with the government regarding establishing a meeting to talk about the pending claims and the completion of the project. Meeting had been established for November 28, 2017, through a discussion I had with counsel for the government, Mr. Good. That meeting was confirmed on November 7, 2017. Just to be clear, the board found that there was confusion, but that that confusion was not reasonable. You know, Your Honor, I don't know if the board found it was unreasonable. I think the board, based upon my involvement on behalf of Nossett at that time and prior to that time, said that Nossett should not have relied upon the facts that were taking place. I was representing Nossett. Nossett did have counsel. There's no question about that. And in light of the fact that once the contract was terminated, there was immediate discussion of transmitting or transferring this to a T for C, termination for convenience. Nossett sent a request for a final decision in January of 2017, which was acknowledged by the contracting officer. Nossett sent a claim for termination cost and a request for final decision in February, February 12, 2018, not 2017, to which the contracting officer replied, the request or the decision will be made on this claim and the other pending by July 1, 2018. The record indicates that perhaps you were led on or your client was led on in this process as to whether a reconsideration was going to take place or when to expect that. And I understand that. What I don't understand is why there was no push on your part. Why there was no push on your part. Why was there no demand, a more clear, well-stated, concrete demand that there be a similar type of concrete response from the government? Well, Your Honor, I would assert that pursuant to Nossett's two requests for a final decision, there was a demand and a push. For example, 
In the February 12th one, there is a February 12th, 2018, there's a section uh, toward the end where NASA requests a final decision from the contracting officer on the termination claim. Uh, NASA made two requests for a uh, final decision in this regard, and also in following the policy of the Contract Disputes Act, uh, NASA requested alternative dispute resolution. NASA did not want to be engaged in a lengthy litigation with the government, was requesting a final decision from the contracting officer, and simultaneously, Your Honor, requesting alternative dispute resolution. Um, there, there was no response other than we will, I will make a decision by July 1st, 2018 to that request for final decision. And can you just clarify something? I'm not looking at it right now, but was the request for final decision, or I think you said there were two of them, <clears throat> specifically about the termination for default or about the requests, um, claim one and claim two, for a certain amount of money that you thought you were owed? For both, Your Honor. For the uh, request for compensation and the termination for default. And the second one was February 12, 2018. The first one was January 17, 2018. On two occasions, NASA requested the contracting officer to issue a final decision on that, that very claim. Uh, and again, in keeping in policy with the CDA, uh, we requested ADR. There was no response to that. After the contracting officer uh, indicated that she would issue a final decision on July 1st, 2018, a meeting was arranged uh, at the National Guard headquarters in Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, and rescission of the termination was discussed at that time. Nossett Surety was present at that meeting, as was counsel for the Guard, as was myself. But the meeting minutes reflect there was a further request for the rescission of the termination. Approximately one month later, counsel for the National Guard wrote uh, to myself as well as counsel to the surety and stated, at this time, the government is not willing to rescind its termination. There's even a question at that point whether that's finality because the, the, the guards council said, at this time, we will not rescind the termination. Uh, and it was only until June of 2018 where the contracting officer finally stated that she would not issue a final decision based upon a suspicion of fraud. At that point, uh, on behalf of Nauset, I filed an appeal with the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals uh, in the end of June 2018, uh, appealing claim number one, which had been submitted many months prior, the subcontractor claim, which is known as Griffin Electric, and claim number two, which sought compensation for and wrongful termination of the contract, which Nauset had submitted on February 12, 2018. Can we consider uh, conduct? that took place outside of the 90-day window? Your Honor, the, the board below said that conduct was irrelevant. I think it's relevant for the following reasons. The second request for final decision was submitted on February 12, 2018. 
which was within the 90-day window. And it's very detailed. Three days before, right? Three days before, Your Honor. And it's very detailed, and it asserts all of the allegations and requests the final decision. After that, it, was, it wasn't until March, I believe, of 2018, where the contracting officer said, I will issue a final decision on July 1st, 2018. I think that's relevant, Your Honor. I, I think the May letter of 2018 is also relevant for Your Honor's consideration, where for the first time in writing, the, the guard through counsel says, at this time, we are not willing to rescind the, the termination. So I believe they are, Your Honor. Counsel, Your Honor. the board did cite some of its own case law precedent for the proposition that there's a bright line rule that things that happen after the notice of appeal date would not be relevant. Were you able to find any cases from our court, for example? I was not able to, but were you able to find any cases from our court or any other court that would support that kind of bright line rule? I did not, Your Honor. Okay. However, in light of the facts of this case, where the termination did not say it was final, the termination did not advise Nossett that if it intended to appeal to the board that it had to do so within 90 days, that the termination did not say if Nossett intended to forego appeal and go to the claims court that it had to within one year. Just to be clear, the November 2017 said you have appeal rights, look at the disputes clause, right? Yes. Did the disputes clause that it referred to provide the details of timing and form? Well, that's an interesting question, Your Honor. In the termination is at Appendix 349, and it says this notice constitutes a decision that the contractor is in default, as specified, in that the contractor has the right to appeal under the disputes clause. Now, the FAR referenced in the contract at that point is an outdated FAR, and it is unavailable unless you did very deep digging on Westlaw. That FAR had been replaced, I believe, on two occasions at that point. So I would argue that this is... Just to be clear, but you're the contracting party, so these are incorporated by reference provisions. Aren't you obligated to know what the term of the contract was? The law is the contractor is charged with knowing the law. Absolutely. And that clause, 52-233-1 from 2002, does specify 90 days and board? I believe it does, Your Honor. Not readily available when you're searching for that clause. Your Honors, I see my time has expired. I thank you for your time and attention. On behalf of Nossip Construction, based upon these facts in the extant case law, we request that the decision of the Armed Services Board of Appeal regarding the appeal as to dismissal of the termination claim be reversed. Thank you. Counselor Grimaldi, did I get that correct? Grimaldi, Your Honor. Grimaldi. 
Thank you, Your Honors. Good morning. It's good to be back. In person. In person, yes. Um, Your Honors, uh, before I get into the issues in this matter that you've discussed with uh, my colleague on the other side, I just want to set the stage a little bit here about what's not in dispute between the parties. There's no dispute. And even oh, before you get to that, I, mm-hmm. just, I just want to confirm something. So we have a uh, non – the board decision in front of us is non-final as to the two compensation claims, but is final as to the termination for default, and yet you think we have jurisdiction? Yes, Your Honor. The Orlando helicopter case – Separates them. Yeah. These are the, the challenge to the default termination is separate and distinct from the monetary claims, from the subcontractor, and um, from NOSET on its performance during the time but, period. And, and it's not just that there are distinct claims. It kind of has to be a distinct case. Right? Yeah. Ordinarily, you would have distinct claims in district court, but right. if some remain, you still have to wait. It wouldn't be a final decision. Correct. And, and that's... Settled. Correct, yes. We, we, we've spent a good amount of time analyzing this okay. and came to the conclusion that we believe that there is jurisdiction okay. for the termination of default here, Your Honors. So, Your Honors, what isn't in dispute between the parties is that the contract was terminated for default, that a notice was sent to NASA in November 2017, that that notice is technically defective. It does not contain the FAR Part 33 language. only contains the FAR Part 49 language about the disputes clause. That made made it defective, correct? Yeah, we would call it technically defective, Your Honor. I'd add that adjective there. Um, And then what is also not in dispute is that NAWCET did contemporaneous research on appealing a termination for default to the ASBCA the same time, around the same time period. Can you you add to this, like, what would a person do in order to take the notice that was provided and figure out what the what the appeal rights were? Do you want I mean, to walk through the steps? Crumbs? What are the cookie crumbs? If sure, you know, sure. The, as the Jayway case said, is the, the breadcrumbs, Your Honor. So the breadcrumbs uh, start with the notice itself and the FAR Part 49 language, which says that there's an appeal right under uh, under the disputes clause. Following that, you go to the disputes clause of the contract, which appears on appendix page 240, and that says uh, that's the incorporation of the clause. So, so just list what the clause is, then you have to go to the FAR. Correct. Okay. And, and we pointed out in our brief that while this is an old disputes uh, clause that appeared in the contract, it is a contract that NAWCET signed, and as Your Honor points out, under this case, uh, court's uh, case law, Turner, they're charged with understanding the contents of their contract and the applicable law. So if they look up this clause, it refers to the uh, appeals underneath the Contract Disputes Act, and then the Contract Disputes Act gives the 90-day deadline for the ASBC. If they looked up the clause online and up came the current version, did the current version, does the current version provide um, the notification of forum and timing? Don't recall that, Your Honor. Actually, um, I've been focusing on the old version. And, and I think you—I don't remember. Did you indicate in your brief how um, they would find the um, thirty-year-old version? Well, I just did two days ago, just to double check, Your Honor. And I, I, I went on to Westlaw. They have uh, historical code of federal regulations, and I searched for the number of the clause, so the fifty-two dot number in quotes. 
And I got it. And it was right there, Your Honor. And in terms of the fact, the argument that the CDA numbers have changed, when I was writing the brief, I entered the old CDA numbers into Westlaw, and the new version popped up. So, you know, as J-Way says, you can follow the breadcrumbs here. And that's how you would wind up finding the 90-day deadline, Your Honor. Um, <clears throat> so what is in dispute between the parties is whether or not that following of the breadcrumbs, if you will, is considered to be an adequate notice of appeal rights. And alternatively, if it is inadequate, whether NAWCET was prejudiced by the inadequate notice. And, Your Honors, just quickly on the adequacy of the notice of the rights, we, we do believe that following the path that I just spoke about and combined with this Court's case law, like Turner, that says that contractors need to be aware of not only the law but the contents of their contracts, that this notice is, in fact, adequate. Just like J-Way, the First Circuit in J-Way found the notice that was nearly identical in that case to be adequate. So we would ask this court to affirm on alternative grounds finding the notice to be adequate. Adequate in what regard? Adequately stated or adequately given notice as to the, the appeal process? I, I'm not sure there's much of a difference in my mind between those two options, Your Honor. So I'll, maybe I, I'll just try to affirmatively state it. It's adequately, it provides adequate notice of appeal rights to NAWCET. That's how the government would state it. And that is what the... And is there a statutory adequacy of notice of appeal rights provision? This term adequate, I want to ground it in some actual source of law. Right, Your Honor. I assume we're not talking about constitutional due process, but maybe we are. I don't know. Right. Your Honor, there has to be... We're not talking about, I think, a statute. The Contract Disputes Act doesn't say these are the words that have to be included. Right. So we quoted, I guess, 605A in whatever the middle case was, Decker. And that has something about give notice. Is there a current statutory version of 605A which seems to have been distributed across a number of different provisions? Yeah. So the... So the 90 days appears in 7104A. And this is the 90-day deadline to actually provide the... This is what has to be read. Let's put it that way, by the contractor. What the problem with this actual termination for default letter is missing the language in FAR 33211A, Roman numeral 5. And I'm not going to read this whole thing to Your Honors because it's two paragraphs here, but it says paragraphs substantially as follows. And the government concedes that... I mean, there can be some debate about what is substantial if words are missing from these paragraphs, but these paragraphs were not included. We will concede that. But what we are arguing, which is separate apart from our prejudice argument, I want to be clear about that. I just want to get back to this. So Decker quotes 605A, the old codification, saying that the CO's final decision, quote, shall inform the contractor of his rights. Okay, yes. Is there a current version of that? I have that, Your Honor. It's 41 U.S.C. 
7103, letter E. And it says, shall inform the contractor of the contractor's rights as provided in this chapter. I believe that's identical language that Your Honor is looking for. Thank you. Yes. So, Your Honor, I see the time's ticking away, so I feel like I should move on from the adequacy argument and talk a little bit about prejudice here. And in some of the conversations you were having with my colleague here, we're asking, should there be a reasonable reliance? Now, Decker says detrimental reliance many times, about seven times or so within it. So it's a detrimental reliance. But Mr. McNamara, I think, agreed that any such reliance has to be reasonable. And what Nostat is asking for, Your Honor, is for this court to, despite the fact that the board found the reliance was not reasonable based on the facts of that case, it looked at not only the declarations, the affidavits of the Nostat employees, but also the actions of counsel, and determined that there was conflict between them and that it was hard to believe that Nostat was unaware of its appeal date. What Nostat is asking this court to do is revisit those facts, reweigh them, and say, despite this research that counsel has done and despite their involvement, those facts, the weight of authority, the weight of the facts should be given to the affidavits. And this court should find opposite of what the board has found on the facts. And because this is a factual question, it's reviewed for substantial evidence, right? It's arbitrary and capricious. Yeah. So this court, you know, as Copper says, it's a heavy burden. And what this court can do here is review this to see if it's arbitrary and capricious, but it cannot substitute its own judgment. How do you reconcile or put together in a coherent way the statement that we actually think Nostat was confused? We're a little puzzled about why they were confused, but they were. What do we, those sort of sound like subjective detrimental reliance to me. But again, we're not talking about subjective detrimental reliance. I mean, there is an element of subjectivity to detrimental reliance, but there also must be an element of objectivity. And that's where the board's decision is on the objectivity part. And if I could walk your honors through the decision. Would you say that's analogous to the reasonableness, that it has to be reasonable? Yes, that's, I would use them interchangeably. Use those words. Yes, yes. The board found that to the extent Nostat employees did not understand their appeal rights, that was not reasonable. And that was based on the facts findings surrounding counsel's involvement. And the confusion language, your honor, starts on appendix page 14. If I'm looking at this right. And at the bottom of that page, the very last paragraph, it talks about the facts before I suggest that Nostat did not understand the distinction between filing a claim with the CL and appealing the termination of default. But that's not the end of, oh, I'm sorry. If you turn the page in the next paragraph, the end of that paragraph is where the word confusion is used. 
That's not the end of the factual analysis. The following paragraph discusses what counsel did, the fact findings on that. And then towards the end of that big paragraph that starts with the record demonstrates, there is a sentence here in which the board says that given the involvement in counsel and the amount of research done, that the board finds it, quote, hard to believe that appellant was unaware of its appeal rights under the disputes clause, even if the termination letter did not include the language required by the FAR. So was there facts, findings discussing confusion? Absolutely. But that wasn't the conclusion of the factual findings. The court must read on to find what the board actually did. Does our standard of review change in a situation where the adequacy of the notices, inadequacy of the notices acknowledged by all parties? The fact that the notice was inadequate to begin with, and it seems to me your argument is that, well, it doesn't matter down at the end. But it does matter. I mean, this is in the regulations, correct? Oh, Your Honor, I want to be very clear that we're not arguing that any notification that is identical to the, that any notification can be missing language and then still is automatically adequate. We believe that this particular one is adequate on the language that's used within it, and that there's been no prejudice based on the facts that are in this record. So unless I'm misunderstanding your question, I just want to be clear the government isn't asking for a blanket rule that says that, you know, any type of inadequacy is fine. We're not arguing that. So once the analysis begins with an inadequate notice, does the standard of review change for us? Well, if this court finds that it's inadequate, then what the court is looking for is prejudice. And the standard of review on that situation is most likely going to be factual because the court will be looking at the record itself. If you look at the Decker case, now, Decker didn't actually get into detrimental reliance because this court affirmed on alternative grounds finding that determination for default was reasonable and not an abuse of discretion. But it talked about, the Decker court talked about remanding back to the board to make a finding in the first instance whether there is detrimental reliance. And that is because a finding of detrimental reliance relies on fact findings. So it is a fact issue, Your Honor. So even if this court finds that the notice here was inadequate, the issue becomes one of prejudice, just like the board found, and that is a fact issue. The standard of review is standard fact, standard review. And what happens if the notice is not inadequate? If it meets all requirements, then there is no other review. Correct. There's no need to get to prejudice, Your Honor. And I realize your time has just run out, but in this question of the board's assertion that there's some sort of right-line irrelevance of any kind of evidence about post-February 15th, the 90-day period, communications, that seems unwarranted, that line? Well, I think it's based in logic, Your Honor. If you're trying to figure out what the party's understanding was before the deadline passed, how could it be actually irrelevant if they keep talking and those 
communications might well shine light on how to understand the earlier communications. Well, I'm, I'm going to pick on a word you used here, Your Honor, and that was keep talking. In, in the scenario that hypothetically you're posing to me, the conversation started before the deadline. Right. What, there's a, there's a, I represented government can, contractors. Can, can I ask you a question? Like, I really am interested in the question Judge Tronto asked, but you're changing the hypothetical kind of asked, which is you're talking about maybe the facts in this case, mm -hmm. but setting the facts of this case sure. aside, how would you answer that question? Is there Not really it. a bright line rule that uh, events that occur after the uh, notice uh, of, with the time period for the appeal are never relevant? I mean, they shouldn't be relevant. I mean, I, I, I can't tell this court that there's never going to be a scenario where the facts that happened after the 90 days or one year for the Court of Federal Claims are not going to be relevant. But there's a, a big element of logic here, and this is why the board does this. When I represented government contractors in my former career, if you're trying to figure out when the appeal deadline is, you have to make that decision before the 90 days. You can't make that decision on the 91st day, the 92nd day, and so on. So the information that's before you to make that decision must all pre-exist from that 90-day deadline. Now, I mean, an affidavit written on the 94th or 95th day describing a conversation that happened 20 days earlier, that's different, Your Honor. There's, there's, there could be scenarios where you're looking at information that's dated later than the 90 days. But if you are a government contracts counsel and you're trying to decide whether or not you need to appeal within this 90-day period, the evidence before you is only that time period. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But to have a bright line rule that says you never look at the evidence that occurs after, mm -hmm. that also seems nonsensical, even under the facts you gave. If it's highly unlikely that the evidence that's submitted afterward it is going to be relevant, it should probably be considered anyway, just to make sure that's so, and make sure it's not one of those scenarios that you're talking about where it could be relevant. Right. I mean, that's a different question. Um, okay. But, can but, I ask you know, one more question? I, I don't can I just add yeah. something to that, Your Honor? And, and that's why we addressed all the evidence in our brief, even yeah. the evidence that was after the 90 days. I, I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to ask you, you used the phrase technically defective earlier. Do you see technically defective as meaning something other than uh, the other phrase that you used, which was inadequate? Well, something that's that's technically defective, it's kind of forgiving it for being defective, the way I'm saying it, that there is a problem with it, but it still accomplishes the purpose that it's, it's set out to do. So I would say that adequate notice and technically defective are the same. Okay. Is, is there any relevance to, is it, I think, the introductory clause of the FAR provision that says you're supposed to include something substantially um, like this? Well, I mean, that's important because if you lose, leave one article out or one word out of it, you could have a contractor claiming it's not identical, right? So I automatically didn't get my notice rights. So that's why it says substantially. There has to be some sort of flexibility. Um, What's important in this case, and the reason why we're sitting here today, is because the notice didn't say 90 days in it. And that's, that's the key part of what is missing. It, it seems to me you want us to just gloss that over and, and not, not give it much significance. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Well, I mean, the fact that it's missing, no, I think it is significant. And that's why this court needs to go through the analysis that the, J the First Circuit did in J-Way. The exact same analysis. Yeah. Follow the breadcrumbs, like I've talked to this court so, about today. So if a notice is technically deficient, we still go to, to the prejudice analysis. Yeah, you can still go to the prejudice analysis, yeah. Right. And I, I just want to uh, use Decker as an example of a situation where you have a very different case where it is inadequate and a problematic. And that's where, in Decker, incorrect advice was provided in the termination notice. It said that you could go to the Court of Federal Claims in 12 months, but at that time, there was no jurisdiction to do so. So that would be a very different... Your Honor, yes. Completely separate topic. So you say in, um, I forget, a footnote of your brief, mm -hmm. um, I think it's uh, page 10, note 4, that... Um, if the termination for default stands, then the various monetary claims will fall. Is that? Um, and, and the, the oh, I'm in the wrong brief. I apologize, Your Honor. That's the Lakata Tool case, Your Honor. Um, that is, that it will yeah, be. That's, that, that's, that's, now, what, that, that's what you cite there. Yeah, I, I, and I will have to admit that if I will not be arguing this case before the ASBCA. It will be the Army will have to move to dismiss on these grounds. But I recommended it to them. Lakata Cool isn't a bright line. It is a test that comes along with that to determine whether or not the claims will stand following um, the uh, uh the, the reason it caught my eye, I guess, was this, that um, there was a communication between November 17th and um, February 15th. In particular, I think it was January 8th. Mm -hmm. um, there in which yes. the contracting officer said um, claim one is still alive and I can't decide it. And if it were true and maybe also very clear mm -hmm. that the termination for default uh, killed claim one, then there couldn't have been any bar to the contracting officer saying Claim one is denied because of the termination right. for default. Mm -hmm. And she didn't say that. Yes, I, it, it, that, that was not a ground for dismissal that was raised initially. It is something that we at DOJ have identified that would be a possibility and wanted to put that in a brief to be upfront with this court about what might happen. Now, just a little note about the contracting officer's uh, statement there. You'll notice from the first part of the ASBCA decision, the discussion of of fraud and the contracting officer's belief that she was unable to make a decision on anything because of the way the FAR is written. The regulation doesn't quite say that. It, it is It is a difficult um, com combination of two think different I, regulations. I, when I read it, it did not preclude a denial on a ground independent of fraud. That hasn't been resolved yet, Your Honor. The language so, yeah. just doesn't say Yeah, uh, that, that is good to hear, Your Honor. I'll put it that way. Uh, there is debate about what is uh, in the government about what a contracting officer can do because of the term when um, suspects fraud, and then there's another term that says uh, there is fraud in two different FAR regulations. I apologize. I don't have this all in okay. front of me today. This is, but this might be a conversation for a later date. Off on a detour, my, my responsibility. It's an interesting far question, Your Honors. Okay. Thank, thank you, Your Honors. Yes, sir. We thank the party for the arguments, and we'll take this case under the